This is the smell of the leftover tuna fish sandwich you left in your lunchbox over the weekend in a wimpy trash bag. Wimpy, wimpy, wimpy! Blech! And this is the smell of that same sandwich in a hefty, ultra-strong trash bag. Hefty, hefty, hefty! Ah, <sighs> smell the difference? Hefty Ultra Strong has Arm & Hammer with continuous odor control, so no matter what's inside your trash... Hmm. You can stay one step ahead of Stinky. And for a bigger job, try the superior strength of hefty large black bags. Welcome back to Feminist Book Club, the podcast. We're not just about feminist books. We are here for social justice, literature, and media in all its forms. But we do that through an intersectional feminist lens. Thanks for being here. Let's get started. Hi, everyone. Jordy here. I'm going to be sharing my thoughts on one of my favorite books this year that also happens to be a great read for spooky season. I'm somewhat of a true crime junkie fan, and I love the romance genre, so this book had all the things for me to absolutely love it. We had some spice, we had relatable family relationships, and a character who is very much into true crime. Love in the Time of Serial Killers, written by Alicia Thompson, follows Phoebe Walsh, who is the protagonist, and she is the epitome of a true crime junkie. She has even gone so far as to become a PhD candidate. Her dissertation, you may ask? Analyzing the true crime genre. However, her hearty interest in true crime has left her slightly paranoid and hesitant to give love a chance. I'm not sure about you, but I've definitely scared myself one or two times after watching docuseries, and I found myself questioning either people's intentions or motives. So for me, Phoebe's character was very relatable in that sense. Anyway... Phoebe spends the summer in Florida cleaning out her childhood home and putting up with her annoyingly high-spirited brother, all while trying to sort out her feelings of mourning for a father she hardly knew. Content warning for this book? There are references, mentions, and stories pertaining to abusive parents. Phoebe's father was emotionally abusive and very unpredictable in the manner in which he responded to his children. So if this is a topic you don't want to read about, I would say skip this book because... It is a problem theme. However, if you can read about it, this book gives great perspective into what it could be like growing up with an emotionally unavailable, unpredictable, and abusive parental figure. Things get a bit more complicated when Phoebe convinces herself that her friendly neighbor, Sam Dennings, is actually a serial killer. What she's more afraid of, though, is Sam turning out to be the good guy that he seems to be. For a crime junkie fan who lives and breathes the romance genre, this book was honestly a gift from the gods. I laughed out loud on several occasions, which is hard to do because a lot of times, you know, you read something and you think to yourself, oh, that was funny, or you may chuckle a little bit, but this one I actually laughed out loud. I also felt connected to all of the characters and found the romance believable. Truly one of the best romance novels, definitely of this year, I think. So if any of that seems enjoyable to you, I would say definitely check this book out. Alicia Thompson was able to seamlessly interweave true crime references into Phoebe's daily interactions and activities in a tasteful and relatable way. Some things that I can think of are, especially if you're a single person or a single female living alone, you know, you double check all of your doors in your house to make sure before you go to bed that no one can, you know, break in that easily. Making sure that you look twice before you head down the street just to make sure, you know, if it's dark at night, nothing's going to happen. Not trusting a nice-looking, friendly guy who needs help because they could be the next Ted Bundy. Um, And all of these true crime nods and the inner dialogue Phoebe has when dealing with sketchy scenarios as a single female living alone felt like the situations were taken straight from my life experiences. So I'm sure if you have 
similar experiences, then you'll definitely relate to this book. We also were able to have Alicia on as a guest, and we had a author interview with her. So if you're interested in hearing Alicia's thoughts and what we discussed, you can check out the full post and author interview on the Feminist Book Club website, and I'll include a link in our podcast show notes. Also, if you have read this book, I would love to know what your thoughts and feelings were about it. Did you like it? Was it not your cup of tea? So let's chat. Thanks for listening. Bye. I'd like to invite you to join the National Women's Studies Association this November 10th through the 13th at the Hilton Minneapolis for the annual conference. The 2022 NWSA conference theme, Killing Rage, Resistance on the Other Side of Freedom, seeks to open up conversations about freedom and justice, salvation and sacrifice, convenience and controversy, and whose life and vote matters. At our conference, you can connect with other activists, feminists, and scholars from across the globe. This year, the keynote speakers are feminist leaders Angela Davis and Anita Hill and many more. Don't know what NWSA is? The NWSA is the world's largest group of feminists, activists, and scholars dedicated to advancing women and women's studies across the globe. So are you a feminist? Join NWSA at nwsa.org to become a member and to see more details on this year's conference. Again, that's nwsa.org or follow them on Twitter at NWSA or on Instagram at NWSA underscore IG. We hope to see you this November here in Minneapolis. Hello, everyone. Renee Powers here, and I am thrilled to be chatting with Wanda Morris today. Wanda Morris is an alumna of the Yale Writers Workshop and a member of Sisters in Crime, Mystery Writers of America, and Crime Writers of Color. As a corporate attorney, as a corporate attorney, Wanda has worked in the legal department of some of America's Fortune 100 companies, and as the president of the Georgia chapter of the Association of Corporate Counsel, she established a signature female empowerment program known as the Women's Initiative. You may recognize Wanda's name from her first book, All Her Little Secrets, but today we are talking about her sophomore novel, Anywhere You Run. Welcome, Wanda. Thank you. Thank you for having me, Renee. I am so thrilled to be talking to you about this book. I told you before we started recording that I I came to this book naturally. <laughs> I found it on NetGalley, which um, for those of you not familiar with NetGalley, that's a, a platform for reviewers and booksellers to get early access to eBooks. And I was like, ooh, that sounds interesting. And then uh, lo and behold, your publicist reached out to me and said, hey, would you like to talk to Wanda about this book? And I said, absolutely. This is so good. So give us a quick introduction to Anywhere You Run. How do you describe it to people? Um, I like to describe it as a coming of age story of two young women growing up in the Jim Crow South of Mississippi. And um, basically the story opens with the 1964 murder of three civil rights activists, Cheney, Goodman, and Schwerner. And against this backdrop, Violet Richards is brutally attacked. But she kills her attacker and she knows that in the Jim Crow South, she won't find any justice. So she takes off running through a series of twists and turns. She winds up in a small rural town in Georgia. Back home in Jackson, Mississippi, her older sister, Marigold, finds the police at her doorstep looking for Violet. She figures 
I might get caught up in this. But Marigold is also in a bit of trouble as well because it's the 1960s and she's pregnant and unmarried. So she decides to take off running as well, thinking that one, she can get away from the police who are looking for a sister and also solve her own problem of being a not so good girl in the 1960s. She takes off running for the North. But unfortunately, the sisters don't realize that they are in much deeper trouble than they ever thought they'd be in because there's a man from Jackson who has his own brand of dark secrets and he is hot on the trail to find the two women. Ooh, it's so good. <laughs> I am a sucker for a good twisty historical thriller. This, this book was like catnip to me. <laughs> But I do love to ask many of our authors, we are the Feminist Book Club podcast. So what does it mean to you to be a feminist? And how does that definition of feminism then inform your work? Mm, that is a great question. I think for me, being a feminist means having a voice. And, you know, it's not like I have this huge body of work, but over the two books that I have written, I try to write stories where women have a voice, whether they have it and don't realize they do, as in All Her Little Secrets, or they have it, but they have to find it, as um, I've done in Anywhere You Run. I think there is often so much noise about who a woman should be, what she could be, what she's not, what she shouldn't be that all of that clouds who she really is. And it's only to me in those moments where we're called upon to be strong, we're called upon to fight for either ourselves or something larger than ourselves, that we actually start to find out who we are and what our voice is and trying to rise that voice up above all the noise and rancor that tells us who we should be. And what I love about this book is that was so clear to me throughout it. And I feel like, and you mentioned it already, I feel like there's so much to be said about this good girl narrative mm -hmm. and what it means to be a good girl, what it means to be a good black girl, what it means to be a good black girl in the South mm -hmm. and how we're going to fail <laughs> no matter what. <laughs> Okay. I'd, I'd love to hear you talk a little bit about that, about your characters kind of pursuing goodness on somebody else's term and then discovering what it means to them to be a good girl to themselves. Yeah, that's, um, that's a great question. So the two sisters are, they're very much alike, although they have very distinct voices. Marigold is trying very, very hard to be, you know, that, I guess, stereotypical good girl in the South and, you know, following her mother around and learning how to cook and do all these things. But deep down inside, she really yearns to be something bigger than that. She has these dreams of going to law school and helping in the civil rights movement, but she feels stilted by all these strictures of being a good girl and as it turns out, she actually winds up doing something that's like diametrically opposed to being a good girl. She actually winds up having, you know, unprotected sex 
when she is not married. And then on the other hand, Violet, with whom the book opens up, you know, has just decided, you know, I will do what I want to do when I want to do it. And I will please no one but myself. But again, she still hears these rumblings in the back about who she should be and what she should do. And she fights that much harder against kind of, you know, this good girl stereotype. And what happens is she winds up making a series of decisions that land her in a really bad situation. Ultimately, I like to think that both the sisters find out who they really are. And like I spoke of earlier, they find their voices. And to me, that's what's really important. I have a daughter and I I like to hope that I tried to teach her that, you know, it's okay to be, you know, loud and noisy and, you know, fight back and do all these things because so often women are told you shouldn't do that. And good girls don't do that. It's taken uh, 36 years of unlearning being a good girl to me. <laughs> Hello. Yep. Me too. <laughs> yeah. So it's uh, it's something that's so ingrained in us. And I love being able to witness Marigold and Violet's unlearning mm-hmm. of this good girl narrative. I also want to talk a little bit about, this is set in the Jim Crow South. This is set after the passage of the Civil Rights Act and, you know, the burgeoning civil rights movement. There's so much to unpack here in terms of race, but there's also so much to unpack here in terms of class. Mm-hmm. And it's something that when we talk about the civil rights movement, we don't necessarily talk about whiteness and class as well. And I'm not trying to center whiteness here, mm-hmm. but there is a white character who is working class, who is his name is Mercer. He's going after the sisters. And I would love to talk a little bit about him because I think this character is also a product of this era. Can you tell us a little bit about him and why you decided to write this white character the way that you did? Yeah, that's a great question. So Mercer's character, if if I could step back for a second, and talk about why I wrote the book. I wrote this book just after I had finished my debut novel, All Her Little Secrets. And it was back in 2020, we had just come through the throes of the presidential election. There was all this noise about, you know, election fraud and the big lie. And I thought, oh, it would be really cool to write a story that tackles that. But I couldn't find a contemporary angle for the story. And, you know, I started to look at the parallels between what was happening in the 1960s and what is happening currently in in the 2020s. And so much, you would think in nearly 60 years that we had progressed so far, but in some ways we really haven't. And I wanted to tackle things like women's reproductive rights, the right to vote, all of those things, and look at it through a lens of 1964. One of the parallels that I find besides those things is this parallel where the rich and the powerful also use poor whites and disenfranchised to do their heavy lifting. It's much like what is going on currently through this political discourse about making America great again. And what that really is, is a dog whistle for let's take us back, you know, 50, 60 years. So in the book, 
I placed Mercer as a character who was also a product of this, this class system that's set up by the rich and powerful, who also not only wanted to keep Blacks down and disempowered, but also poor whites, who they ultimately used because if they could drive a wedge between the people who were poor based on race, then that was that much fodder for them to lift themselves up and keep themselves in power. There was, I can't remember who said the quote, but there's a quote that is something to the effect of a poor Black man and a poor white man are basically the same, except the poor white man thinks he's better than the Black man. And so that's much of what is ingrained in Mercer's character as well, because he makes comment in the book. He's like, I'm just as white as these other people are. So why, why am I not driving the fancy car? And why don't I have the fancy clothes? But that's because he's become a pawn for those people who are not only racist and using Black people to keep themselves in power, but they were also using disenfranchised and poor whites. And so I wanted to explore that theme because again, like I said, I was trying to write a book that would demonstrate parallels between what is currently going on and what was going on back during the emerging civil rights movement. And that's what I think is so brilliant about this book and about fiction in general is how it speaks to our current lived experiences, but this is a thriller, you know, like this is a, a, a fun, like curl up on the couch with your tea in front of a fireplace and read this twisty topsy-turvy book. And yet, and yet. <laughs> we're learning something. We're experiencing history through the eyes of these two sisters and through this character Mercer as well. And uh, I just think, I think you've done it so well. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. You know, it's so interesting when I was doing the research for this book, you know, I learned so much and things that surprised me, but shouldn't have surprised me, you know, little things like women couldn't get credit in their own name. Yeah, not until the um, 80s. They had to, right. Yeah. So they had to have a cosigner or they had to be married and get their husband's permission. And I was like, what in the world? And so it was, again, a system that was designed to keep women, Blacks, poors, all down. And it worked well for these people uh, for a time. But my fear is that those very hard-fought rights are starting to ebb away. I finished this book before the Roe v. Wade decision came down, and I never imagined that these two characters who have no rights to govern their own bodies would be exactly like my daughter is mm. right now, who's a 20 something. You know, I think about it, I'm like, gosh, I have more rights than my daughter does when I was her age. That's really frightening. I don't think that that's like the end of it. Roe v. Wade won't be the end of it. And so I tried to touch on a lot of those things, like I said, women's financial independence the Black church's problem with gays and lesbians. I tried to touch on all those themes that very eerily seem familiar today. Oh, gosh, I completely forgot about that thread. There's <laughs> <laughs> yes. a lot. Of <laughs> there is a lot and it all works. I know that your day job, if we can call it that, you are an attorney. 
<laughs> so how did you know researching this book influence your work and how did this your work as an attorney influence this book it sounds i mean you're already telling us about you know civil rights and the history of it but i would love to hear more sure so interestingly enough, my legal specialty is labor and employment law. So I deal with discrimination in the workplace. And so that aspect of the law, discrimination law, is covered by the Civil Rights Act of 1964, which was the law that said, you know, Blacks didn't have to ride in, in the back of buses. We had equal access to schools, jobs, what have you. So I've always practiced in that particular realm of the law. So when I was thinking about writing this book and going back to the 60s, I thought, oh, it would be really cool to start kind of at that genesis because the Civil Rights Act was passed in 1964 and the Voting Rights Act was passed in 1965. I thought initially I'd go back to 1965, but I actually went back to 1964 simply because the law had been passed, but there was this small wedge of time where uh, white Mississippians decided we're not going to follow the law. I know that the president has signed it. That's the law of the land, but we've decided we won't do that. And actually some white businesses tried not to follow the law or they decided they just shutter their doors rather than follow the law. And so then that's where you got the Freedom Riders, the Mississippi Summer Project, because then you had testers who would come in and they would attempt to register the vote or Freedom Riders who would attempt to register into hotels and ride in the front of the buses or sit at a, you know, a luncheon counter. And so it was all pretty interesting. And it was really a moment for me because I said, gosh, I've always practiced in this realm of the law and hadn't really explored it in depth the way I did when researching for this book. So that was a, a really, it was a double-edged sword actually, because it was fun to go back and kind of research the genesis of the law. It was difficult because reading firsthand accounts of the lynchings and the beatings and some of the pictures, that was tough stuff to look at and listen to. That was a question that I had as well is I can't imagine how intense the research process must have been for this book. How do you take care of yourself? How do you make <laughs> sure that you just don't go spiraling out of control into, into rage, honestly? Yeah, that, that was tough. <laughs> um, that was tough. A few times, what I did actually is when I got to a difficult piece of research, if it was something that I really couldn't deal with at the time, I just kind of put it aside and I do something else because there were also some fun aspects of the research. I wanted to make sure that the reader was really immersed in the 1960s. And so I listened to a lot of music from that time period. I even have a playlist on my website. So it includes all sorts of, of music from that time period, a civil rights anthem, James Brown, Patsy Cline, Frank Sinatra, The Loneliest Monk. So I would, you know, if the research got to be difficult, I would go to another aspect that was a little more pleasurable. I read a lot of magazines and looking at women's fashion from the 1960s, looking at pictures of buildings and things like that. So yeah, I did have to take breaks. <laughs> I also knit 
And so sometimes I just had to put it away and go do something completely different because it, you know, I always think that I could not be more surprised by the depth of man's inhumanity. And then I would stumble upon a piece of research and go, how could one person do that to another person? So, so yeah, some of it was tough, but some of it was actually good as well. I don't want to end on that because it is a little sad. So tell me about your knitting. What what project are you working on right now? <laughs> you, you can't see, but I have like a stack of blankets <laughs> that I just, whenever I get to like a naughty problem or plot point in the book that I can't quite figure out, I'll pick up a knitting project. And, and so, yeah, if you want a blanket, DM me your address. <laughs> I'm telling you, I've got a stack of them because- I just, I love the process of writing, but, you know, as most writers, you come to a point where you're kind of like, I can't figure out how to make this work. And because this book is a cat and mouse kind of thriller, I kept trying to raise the stakes. And so that required me doing a lot of knitting to figure out how to do that. (laughs) That's beautiful. Well, this has been such a delight to talk to you today. I have to ask, well, first off, I want to say that this book is out October 25th. It came out. So make sure that you will put a link in our show notes, buy it. You will not regret it. It is such a wonderful thriller, wonderful kind of lose yourself, immerse yourself in the 1960s. And yeah, you'll be on the edge of your seat the whole time. So aside from that, I love to ask our authors you know, if you have a book to recommend or what are you reading right now that's not one of your own, is there a book that you would like to recommend to our audience? Yeah, you know what? I am reading right now. I got an early copy, Time's Undoing by Cheryl Head. And it comes out February, 2023. You want to put that on your TBR. Very powerful book that is loosely based on her own great-grandfather who was killed by the Birmingham, Alabama police. And so it's told in dual narrative of a young woman who's a reporter and she goes back uh, to Birmingham to investigate. Cheryl's an excellent writer. She's written a, a series, the Charlie Mack series, if anybody wants to read some of her stuff that's currently out, but it's an excellent book. Mm. Well, we are big fans of pre-ordering books around here, so we will put that on our pre-order list. Thank you so much for that recommendation. Where can we find you on the internet if we want to keep up with you and connect with you further? Absolutely. So my website is wandamorriswrites.com and I'm on Twitter as wandamo14 and Instagram as wandamorwrites. I'm also on Facebook, wandamorriswriter. So yeah, check out the website. I love to hear from readers. So feel free to send me a message um, through my website. There's a contact page, um, but I always love hearing from readers. We will put all those links in the show notes. Wanda, thank you so much for this. This was a joy. Oh, thank you, Renee. Thank you very much for inviting me. Hi, I'm Nina Simons, author of the award-winning book, Nature, Culture, and the Sacred, A Woman Listens for Leadership. 
In it, I describe how leadership itself is being reinvented and modeled by amazing sheroes in every area of life, and how working with hundreds of diverse women changemakers helped me to learn how to create the conditions for collaboration and trust. So if you're looking to deepen your understanding of leadership with practices for liberating who you were born to be, then this book is for you. Learn more by visiting ninasimons.com. Thank you for tuning in to today's episode of Feminist Book Club, the podcast. Want to be part of the club? Here's how you can join us. Obviously, subscribe to our podcast and leave a rating and review for brownie points. Follow along on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, Pinterest, and TikTok. All of those links are in the show notes. Sign up for our newsletter to be the first to know what our next monthly book pick is. And check out our award-winning monthly book subscription service. Oprah Magazine named it one of their favorite book boxes, and Shonda Rhimes called us one of her favorite subscription boxes in general. There are multiple membership levels for any budget, and it's an excellent way to support the show and the voices you heard today. See you in the club. A well-read woman is a dangerous creature, creature. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary.